With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Dan Lloyd. Welcome to Double Stint Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast, coming to you this week from the Bahrain International Circuit, just following the conclusion of the FIA World Endurance Championship season. I'm John DeGeese, joined by Dan Lloyd. How are you tonight, Dan? Very well, thanks, John. Yeah, it's been, uh, as usual, a very, very busy FIA World Endurance Championship finale, but a race that brought so many talking points, so many things to discuss. So yeah, looking forward to diving into it with you here. We're going to be recapping the eight hours of Bahrain season finale for the World Endurance Championship, breaking down some of the news of the week, largely from the WEC paddock here in Bahrain. And we'll also preview this coming weekend's Motul Petit Loma. Um, first off, we'll start off with the news of the week, and that was the eight hours of Bahrain. We had a season finale race here with the the um, start off with hypercar with really no surprise i think dan um, toyota one two finish number eight car wins the race with brendan hartley kazuki nakajima and sebastian buemi with the number seven toyota of mike conway kamui kobayashi and jose maria lopez clinching the world championship yeah, John, you could argue that this was the ideal result for Toyota, considering the number seven crew won the world championship, the number eight crew won the race, and of course, Kazuki Nakajima's final outing for the team, having been with them since the start of the WEC. It, it, was, it, it was domination as we would have expected. In terms of the title race, really, I think the championship was won in qualifying. Um, the result with uh, the number seven car taking pole position, beating Kamui Kobayashi beating Brendan Hartley to the top spot, that enabled the number seven to really cruise to victory in, in, in the race because it meant that even if the number eight crew won, the number seven would still have won the title just by being classified in, in the hypercar category, which only ran only had three cars on the grid with the absence of Glickenhaus. So uh, in, in the end, it was a straightforward championship, but nonetheless, a deserved one for Conway, Kobayashi and Lopez. It's been tight between the two Toyotas, three wins apiece this season, um, but the seven crew had the edge, perhaps picking up the points in the right races, most notably Le Mans. Uh, they come away with the title. That's right, Dan. Toyota also becomes the first manufacturer to sweep all WEC races in a single season. I, I guess... You know, we had the challenge from Rebellion in the previous years, um, taking a, a couple wins in, in the Super Season and the 2019-2020 season. We didn't quite have anything like that um, this year. It had a challenge from Alpine, sort of went unraveled in the eight-hour race. Um, gearbox issues for that LMP1 grandfathered car ultimately took it out of contention, finishing six laps behind. Do you, what do you make of Alpine's challenge in, in the eight-hour, uh, Dan? Well, it wasn't much of a challenge. I mean, if, if it was, if you could consider a challenge there, it was the first 15 minutes when uh, Nico Lapierre made a really nice move actually into the first corner, getting past both Toyotas. I think he probably took Mike Conway and Sebastian Buemi by surprise. Um, Lapierre managed to, managed to keep a decent pace, but I think when, when traffic struck the, the Alpine, as has been the case at all circuits this season, the Alpine just doesn't seem to match as well with the, the four-wheel drive hybrid Toyota. Um, and then after the two Toyotas had got past, the, uh, the, the Frenchman started struggling with, with some gearbox, with some shifting issues, both up and down. Um, Alpine brought the car to the garage, tried to uh, make some repairs. They changed the actuator on the car, sent it back out, and it seemed to be working well for the rest of the race. But uh, with that, it was condemned to uh, third place with the Toyotas that have been 
pretty reliable all throughout the season and has been a, a real testament to, to their result in a, being able to sweep the season, as you said, John. Um, perhaps a little bit surprising that maybe Toyota didn't have at least one totally catastrophic race, um, considering it's the first year of these regulations, the LMH regulations. Um, Alpine wouldn't say they necessarily did anything wrong this year. It was just really strong, really solid running from Toyota. Absolutely. Moving on to LMP2, we had a dominant run as well for WRT, winning the race and the title with Ferdinand Habsburg, um, Robin Freins, and Charles Malesi. Yeah, that's right. It, it was looking a lot closer in LMP2, sort of leading towards the halfway point. We've, we've had throughout the season these, these brilliant tactical battles between the top four cars, the two Jota Cruz, the United Autosports defending champions, and also WRT. Uh, but the second half of the race, Robin Freins, I think, really came into his own. He, he, he just turned up the wick and extended the gap, I think. WRT were also helped by the fact that we had no safety car periods. It was all four-course yellow action. Um, they were able to play those nicely and came away with a huge victory. It was a lot closer for the battle for second, the two Jota cars going at it. Not the first time we've seen that this season. Uh, Antonio Felix da Costa making a late move on uh, Tom Blomfist, who, who, whose number 28 crew came in as the main challengers to WRT. In the end, though, Jota were able to have a bit of a scrap between themselves because there was nothing that could be done about the Belgian squad taking the win and the championship in the process. And it's taken us, what, about five minutes into this podcast, and we still haven't mentioned the craziness of GTE Pro. And I think that was the category that overshadowed everything this week, even last week, with the balance of performance changes and the controversy there. Um, Provisionally, and I guess we could still say provisionally, AF Corsa and Ferrari have taken the title, but it came in a pretty dramatic fashion. Um, it, it came after contact between the two cars in the final 15 minutes of the race after a really hard-fought battle between the number 92 Porsche of Kevin Estra, Neil Johnny, and Michael Christensen and the number 51 AF Corsa Ferrari of James Collado and Alessandro Piraguidi. Um, Dan, what was your viewpoint from, from the, the action and, and really the definitive moment that the contact happened while, uh, while battling for the lead there in the closing minutes? Yeah, battling for the lead and for the championship. It was really uh, an ideal situation for the spectator because uh, Kevin Estra's pole meant that the number 92 Porsche crew and the number 51 Ferrari crew went into the final race of the season level on, on the standings. And it, 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 it had to come down to this, really, the, the two cars battling for position. Um, Michael Christensen, interesting that they put him in for the, for the latter stint, not being one of the full-time drivers, but he's nonetheless an expert in the RSR 19. Uh, he was being caught by Alessandro Pierguidi, who had, put, uh, who had taken two new rear tyres on his Ferrari 488 GTE Evo. Uh, Pierguidi brought the gap down to Christensen, who um, I understand was on a... He had taken all four tyres at the last tyre change pit stop, but um, he had... Uh, an older set on so he was perhaps struggling for grip a little bit more um in the end though as, as i'm sure we all saw uh Pierre guidi bumped into the back of christensen under braking perhaps influenced a bit by felipe albuquerque's united autosports orica there was a, a sort of external factor in there as well um but whatever happened we know the outcome it was it was a spin around for the porsche and the ferrari continued Things did get a little bit more complicated from there, though. Um, you can read all about uh, what happened on Sportscar 365. Um, I'll ask you, though, John, um, a lot of this happened post-race. The, 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 the bottom line is that the Ferrari uh, crossed the line first and provisionally won the championship, but we had a few uh, post-race things to chase around. Would you be able to give a, a summary of, of the things that we learned in the uh, hours after the race? 
Yeah, thanks. Leave it to me to try to handle this. That's going to be a, a bit of a, a tale. Um, we had Porsche lodge a protest post race over the the post over the decision or lack of decision made after um, the the Ferrari was was told to give its position back, which it never ended up giving back due to the number ninety two car pitting um, immediately immediately after the contact. Then that that ruling was actually rejected by the WEC stewards, which led to Porsche appealing that ruling, which as of a recording this on uh, Sunday evening following the, the, the day after the race, um, is still appears to be going to the FI um, uh, Court of Appeals, International Court of Appeal, that will decide the championship and the race result. Um, we know Porsche has a decision to make probably by Tuesday, so as of the publishing of this po- podcast, whether they'll actually pursue this officially or not, there's sort of a deliberation right now over whether they will. Um, we don't know which way it'll go, but for all intents and purposes, this the results are still not official, and I think that's the, the highlight we have to sort of bring to this podcast, at least right now, that... We don't know if AF Corsa and Ferrari and James Collado and Alessandro Piragridi have won the, the GTE World Drivers and Manufacturers and Teams Championship just yet. Uh, we might have to wait a little bit, and it could actually be a longer wait with the International Court of Appeal, often taking quite a few months' time generally, especially after an end-of-a-season kind of situation like we have here. So stay tuned. Um, this has certainly escalated, and, and I, I think... It's been a bit of an interesting week just seeing this all unravel from the BOP complaints made by Ferrari, uh, a protest made by them in the run-up to the weekend, that getting thrown out by the the WEC stewards and then ending in contact on the track and then with the questionable call not to penalize or any further action on that Ferrari. Yeah, definitely. It it seemed as though it it was almost... It, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't never a nice way to end the race, but it almost seemed the natural conclusion based just generally having more chaos added to chaos. Um, as you mentioned, the, the the balance of performance was a it was a completely different debate coming into the race, and and Ferrari wanted the balance of performance restored after the um, six hours of Bahrain where they were nowhere. Um, complained a lot got halfway there in terms of the power um the, the the power loss that they had in the BOP um in the end we had a very close race and i must say up until the incident it was probably one of the best gt pro races of what has been a fantastic season um i just think having seen a few of the bits behind the scenes it, it was quite a quite an ugly way of going about a championship decider and it, and it certainly put a bit of a sour note on the entire season um because we've been treated to some fantastic racing in this category um and I, I suppose it just, in some degree, it might uh, just demonstrate the, the sheer hunger that these manufacturers have to, to win in such a tight category. But uh, I don't know, it, it, didn't, it didn't seem like a nice way to end it. And uh, certainly with appeals and protests is not, not how you like to see championships unfold, I don't think. Yeah, I agree with you 100%, Dan. I, it was left a real sour note for me, and really no blame could be said to anybody in particular. There was a lot of series of events that happened during the closing stages of the race and post-race. Um, I wish there was maybe a little more clarity from race control on on, on why they rescinded the, the, the penalty to, to give up the position, but we didn't get that. Uh, this will ultimately likely go to the Court of Appeals now, so we'll have to wait and see what happens. 
Moving on to the final class of the race, GTEM. It was a little more straightforward of a race there with the number 83, AF Corsa, taking their fourth win in six races and the title also going to Francois Perotto, Nicholas Nielsen, and Alessio Rivera. Yeah, it was a straightforward run, I'll admit. Um, in terms of how the race panned out, we did see a few cars that featured highly early on encountering some incidents. I know that the uh, the Chetelar Racing Ferrari was very strong in the early stages of the race, and they ended up um, having an incident down at Turn 1, I believe it was, I think with Antonio Fuoco. Um, so, but, but in the end, the number 83 Ferrari, it just did what it does. That, that, that car, and we saw it at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, that car just runs, and, and the three drivers aboard it have such great chemistry. Um, Perodo being one of the top bronze-rated drivers out there, assisted by two of Ferrari's youngest prospects, um, rock solid, and, and, and they put the title beyond doubt. It was actually similar, sort of results-wise, it was similar to LMP2 um, in the sense that the team that... The, needed to win the championship just ended up winning the race and sort of put any any mathematical considerations beyond doubt and I suppose it was exacerbated in GTEM by the fact that the main contender the TF Sport Aston Martin uh, had, a, had an incident at the, well a couple of incidents actually in the early stages of the race with Ben Keating um, Keating's going to come back for another try next year uh, came close on this occasion but yeah at the end of the day the the A of course the number 83 crew were were so strong and, and I'm intrigued to see how they're doing LMP2 because if they're forming GTMs, anything to go by, they're going to be really strong in that Pro-Am class next year. Finally, we have to mention before moving on to the news, this is actually kind of news items as well, but it came to a, a, a conclusion over the course of the weekend. We had the development that Anthony Davidson and Kazuki Nakajima were both calling time on their WEC careers. Um, Davidson retiring from professional uh, driving and Nakajima um, standing down from his longtime duties as one of the, the first Toyota factory drivers from 2012 onwards. Uh, a real end of an era for, for both drivers, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, two drivers that are just synonymous with greatness in endurance racing and uh, in particular with the Toyota setup. Uh, both of them have achieved such great success. Davidson, um, I, I'll always think it's a shame that he never quite got that Le Mans win, but I still think his contributions to the team and his 2014 world title with Sebastian Buemi is, is such a, a great, it's such a great career that he's had. And, and I think as we mentioned on the podcast last week, he's just always been such a, such a great explainer of things, a really accessible person to, to the fans and to the media and, and, uh, just, just such a great ambassador for the sport, really. So ho hopefully we'll see him in the paddock more um, in the future and uh, Kaz Nakajima as well again such a friendly guy um, be such a shame to lose him from the Toyota lineup but uh, and his contributions have just been huge um, he's experienced the highs he's experienced the lowest of the lows we all remember what happened at Le Mans in 2016 and, and he's just uh, he's, he's just been such an asset for the manufacturer and been been such a crucial part of their story in endurance racing so um, both of them tip of the cap to them I think there were certainly a few tears shed by 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 both after the race uh, on Saturday and uh, yeah best of luck to both of them in their in their future endeavors and it was great to see Kazuki going out on a high claiming the the win and bringing that number eight car to the checkered flag to take the eight hours of Bahrain victory um, moving on next to more news from, from the paddock over the course of the week. Dan, this is one of the stories you uncovered during the, during our trip to the eight hours of Bahrain. The FIA WEC is considering a two car mandate for GTE AM teams. Tell us all about it. 
Yeah, it's, uh, it, this is something that's under consideration. I'll stress that it's, it's not been communicated officially um, as, as a rule change for next season, or at least publicly, by the World Endurance Championship. But what we understand is that GTE and teams will be um, required to run two-car lineups, and those two-car lineups will share a single garage. So what you can expect is uh, something like a, what I would describe as a Nürburgring 24 layout, where you have one car behind the other in, in the garage. And not too much space, but it, it's an interesting proposal. It, it's based on the fact that um, we should get... A, 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 increased interest for the World Endurance Championship next year. Let's remember we've got uh, the arrival of Peugeot in the hypercar class. Uh, we've also, it also sounds like we've got plenty of interest in the LMP2 ranks and maybe some, some more things going on in GTE. So uh, the, the series has put forward this idea that the GTE AM category would be shuffled around, let's say, logistically in, in the pit lane in order for, for, for the uh, grid that they want to work and, and to try to ensure that, that no team is left out. The, the flip side is that it seems as though some teams will be left out. Um, in particular, the, the single car entrance in GTE Am, I'm thinking GR Racing with its Porsche and Paul Dallalano, such a, a long-time servant of the uh, GTE Am category uh, with his sole Aston Martin racing car. What do they do? We're not sure. I, I spoke to Pierre Fion for a comment and he said that uh, the, the ACO will, will uh, always seek to work with single car teams and, and made the impression that they didn't want to abandon them. But certainly a two car mandate would make things very difficult. I know some teams certainly don't want to be sharing fuel rigs and garage space with, uh, with another team when space is already quite limited in these complex uh, garages in the WEC. So there are loads of other points, loads of other perhaps items of contention, let's say, um, that some of the teams have put forward. Uh, that can all be found in an article on Sportscar 365, and uh, we'll certainly be tracking this more. Um, perhaps comment to come maybe from the organisers. We might hear more regulation change, or not, not necessarily changes. We might hear more on the regulations in December when the uh, FIA World Motorsport Council next meets. So, uh, yeah, let's keep an eye on that one. Definitely something to stay tuned for. Um, next, we had the news, um, rather surprising development, I'd have to say, that the SRO Motorsports Group is taking a stake in the Asian Le Mans series to co-organize that championship starting in 2023. Um, Stefan Rattel was here over the, over the weekend in Bahrain, um, signing the agreement with Pierre Fion, the ACO president, and Frederick Lequin, the the managing director and the CEO of the Asian Le Mans Endurance Championship and also LMEM, the, the management company behind the WEC and European Le Mans series, that this will be a joint effort for Asia that sees um, the Fanatec GT World Challenge Asia, powered by AWS, continue sta as a standalone series, but its GT3 class um, combined with the GT3 class of the Asian Le Mans series towards an overall GT3 classification that would give an automatic invite to the 24 Hours of Le Mans in GT3. Also, the ACO is handing out an additional invite to, to Le Mans for the champion in the Gold Cup or um, potentially Pro-Am class in G the GT World Challenge Europe. So this is, I think, has a lot, a lot of larger implications over not just Stefan and, and his organization taking an interest with ACO, but this could also mean more cooperation in the future, um, perhaps on the BOP side with uh, GT3's arrival in 2024. What do you, what do you think, Dan? Yeah, certainly it seems as though the, the seeds are being sown for uh, greater collaboration on the GT3 side, and, and, and that's only a good thing. Um, 
SRO has done wonders for the category over the last few years. We all know the strength of the grids that SRO has been able to produce and the big races it's being able to uh, put on. Um, with the direction that the GTE class is going, that will go uh, go away and be replaced in 2024 by GT3. It certainly seems as though the timeline works for there to be um, a need for uh, harmony between these uh, sanctioning bodies, organising bodies. It does remind me actually of when we were sort of moving towards greater harmony and prototype racing between uh, IMSA and the ACO. Um, I, I see it as a good thing. I, I think collaboration is, is the only way forward when you've got such complicated matters of different teams in different championships, so many different manufacturers in GT3. Yeah, really looking forward to seeing how that progresses and uh, a, a nice development. It's interesting they're starting with Asia as well. Um, certainly uh, a, a market where both of them have been active in recent years. I know Asian Le Mans series has moved to uh, the Middle East, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll be uh, certainly one to watch in, in how the championships develop, what sort of interest it gathers going forward. Yeah, Stefan said the goal for 2023 is actually going to be the 2022-2023 season where they would have two races in the Middle East, uh, keeping that stable and also reintroducing the Asian Le Mans series to the Far East um, for two additional rounds. So we'll have to see how that unfolds. Um, also in the news, we had a chat with Elton Julian of Dragon Speed, who revealed that they're considering bringing back their BR Engineering BR1 LMP1 car for 2022. Um, this is quite an interesting development um, on, on that side in that this could mean we have two grandfathered LMP1 cars on the grid in 22. Still nothing finalized, nothing formalized. I think it's more of an idea right now. But um, Dragon Speed's kind of at this crossroads where we believe that Hendrick Hedman is most likely not going to be returning to the WEC. Um, Elton's looking for some more uh, projects and clients, and he says there's some interest in bringing the BR1 back. Yeah, right. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see it, to be honest. I, I thought it was a, um, a great... Just, just a great addition to the grid. We remember with the the SMP Racing uh, BR program, and of course that that independent um, outfit from Dragon Speed. I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't even realise they still had the car. Um, but it, it, it's it's great that they're considering to bring it back. Um, I do naturally question from a competitive side what the goal would be there. We know obviously Alpine has struggled to match the Toyotas this season with a grandfathered LMP1 car and, and when you consider Signia Tech Alpine to be one of the top prototype racing outfits out there, you do wonder how Dragon Speed, which hasn't run the car in quite a while, would fare. But hey, I'm I'm more than happy to see the team go for it and uh, fair play to Elton Julian for putting it out there. Let's uh, let's see if he gets some interest. Yeah, again, I would think we want to stress that it's at the preliminary stages, but you know, anything is possible in the world of sports car racing. Finally, for this week, we had a catch-up with the new head of Porsche Motorsport, um, Thomas Laudenbach, who provided an update on the schedule for the LMDH rollout for their car. Um, pretty much everything's on schedule still, expecting the, the car to turn its first laps at in a, in a rollout shakedown uh, situation right before Christmas. Um, driver lineup still being finalized. We know we had the news of Yuffie Yi um, becoming a Porsche Asia Pacific selected driver. Um, Thomas um, spoke about that and, and saying that there is potential that he could become the first Chinese driver in LMDH. That might be a goal of Porsche's there. Um, other information on that, you could check out our story on Sports Car 365. 
Finally, um, this week, we'll preview Motul Petit Lama. Both, both of us are headed there in a, in a few days. Um, 43 cars on the entry list as of the recording of this podcast. The largest field since 2014. Um, Dan, I know there's a lot of storylines going into the week. Um, what's sort of on your mind as we um, gear up for the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship season finale? Well, apart from Waffle House, I'm really excited to be just going back to Road Atlanta. I mean, it's such an awesome track. Always, always reminded me of Brands Hatch, actually. I love, I love the trees in the middle of the circuit, people hanging out there. The atmosphere is amazing. I'm really looking forward to that. But most, most of all, of course, though, the, the racing itself, Petit Le Mans, always providing all the action. Um, we, we remember the, 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 the final lap or the final sort of minutes antics that we've seen in, in recent editions, and I'd expect no less um, for that event. We've also got the matter of the championship, which is, uh, which is going to be extremely tight heading in. And then, of course, we've got the title race, John. Um, really, it's, it's tight in DPI. Where do you think things will go there? Uh, what are the battles we should be keeping an eye out on in the uh, top category? Yeah, I think a lot of eyes are going to be on the DPI points race. The Philippe Albuquerque and Ricky Taylor have a 19-point lead over Pipo Durrani and Felipe Nasser, two rivals, two rival teams in the championship. Um, they've sort of been tooth and nail all year. Um, if you remember, they Ricky had a coming together with Pipo in the Petit Le Mans last year, um, ultimately deciding that race. Um, it, it's going to come really with some fireworks, I think. 19 points. Sounds like a lot, but in IMSA's new for 21 uh, uh, qualifying format, uh, points format, that is, that's really the equivalent of 1.9 points, so less than two points in, under the old system. So it's really almost head-to-head, just like we saw with GTE Pro this past weekend in, in WEC. Um, other classes are a little more straightforward. We know Corvette Racing will clinch the championship in GTLM as long as they start the race. GTD is a bit of a tight battle there um, between the Paul Miller Racing Lamborghini as well as the FAF Motorsports Porsche. Um, they're going to be going out at it uh, as well as the Heart of Racing Aston Martin, which holds a bit of an outside chance of the title as well. I think GTD and DPI are the two big um, close battles there, but uh, LMP3 is led by the Riley Motorsports um, Ligier of Gar Robinson and also um, PR1 Matheson Motorsports leading LMP2 going into the season finale. So lots to play for, lots of excitement, I think, um, going into this race held at a different time of the year again. Um, we had the 12 hours of Sebring at this same weekend last year. Um, this year now it's Petit Lama um, due to the COVID pandemic and the rescheduling of races from the WeatherTech Championship. So um, cooler conditions, one extra hour of darkness, lots of unknowns to play for there. Um, definitely looking forward to it. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Um, thanks again for Dan for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Um, thanks again, and be safe. Be safe.